So as, uh, we, as we begin tonight, I'm just thinking, when you think of the Bible, I'm going to ask for a little audience participation here. As we think of the Bible, uh, what comes to your mind? Jesus. Jesus. What else comes to your mind? The greatest book ever written. The greatest book ever written. Beginnings. The beginnings. God's love for us. God's love for us. <clears throat> Life instruction book. Directions for living. You haven't, have you heard the acronym Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth? Yeah, it's like that. Uh, though I have a sermon, and we will, I, I can talk about it at some point. Uh, some people say they treat the Bible like the owner's manual for your life. I advise against that. Here's why. How many of you have ever read your car's owner manual cover to cover? <laughs> like, nobody. When do you read the car's owner's manual? When something goes wrong. When you, let me tell you, the first time I had a flat tire on my car, changing flat tires, it's, it's all different now on the newer cars, right? I go and grab the book out, and you know, it's pristine. I open it up, and there it is, how to change a flat tire. It's not a bad idea to think of the Bible as an owner's manual, except we then will turn it into something we read. We, we, we have to look up something in the back, and we read furiously in, in times of trouble. And that's not a bad thing. But the better thing is to let the Bible connect with your life every day so that when you are in trouble, that will be, the Word of God will be in your heart, and you will, and you will be in, refreshed by that and not frightened by it. That's just my... My my stand, uh, steady uh, my point on uh, the Bible as 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 manual, but they do have instructions. It isn't about instructions uh, for living. It's a Bible. It's a book about real life. Anyone else? Okay, so let's talk about the Bible at a basic level. The word Bible can't, comes from a Greek word, and the Greek word is biblos, which means book. I know, it's not a creative title, is it? It's, this is the book. Uh, it is, in my copy, it is bound in some sort of imitation leather that is green and beige that I have used every Sunday I have preached, but save a few. I bought this in 2012 at the bookstore at the Duke University Divinity School. I thought I was going to seminary at Duke, I didn't. Shirley liked my She Got One Just Like It. Ordered it from Cokesbury. I bought it at the Cokesbury bookstore back when, you know, those were still a thing. Uh, I thought I was going to seminary at Duke. I bought this Bible on clearance sale there, like most Midwesterners. Um, if you ask me about anything I own, I'll explain to you that I got it on sale. <laughs> you know this is true for many of you as well. <laughs> Someone says, that's a nice bag. Your first response is, I got it on sale. <laughs> Just saying, I do that. Um, and so, in, in this, this version, which is the Wesley Study Bible and the New Revised Standard, I recommend this Bible highly if you're thinking about a Bible to purchase. You, I don't think you can get it in green and beige. I think it's in dark gray now. And this is a study Bible, and it's about 1,590 pages long. It has maps. It has notes. It has an index. Um, and so I look at this, and I think this is one of the longest books I've ever read. 
I am a great fan of short books. Uh, once I get about 120 pages, that's about it. But this book, somehow, I have persisted in reading past 120 pages. But the good news, or an important news to say about the Bible, is the Bible is not a single book. It is not an extended version of War and Peace or the Brothers Karamazov. It is a library of books. There are, there are two testaments, old and new. A testament is an English word that also means covenant. So the Old Testament can also be called the Old Covenant. It refers to the Old Covenant, which is the Abrahamic Covenant. We'll talk more about that next week. And the New Covenant, which is uh, Jesus established. Some of you have noticed when we celebrate Holy Communion in this church, when uh, pa the pastor who is officiating says uh, on the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. Uh, and then took the cup and said, this is the what? The new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so the old covenant and the new covenant, scholars sometimes feel that the old term old covenant or Old Testament is pejorative or anti-Semitic, uh, downplaying the role of Israel, which is we're going to talk about is not fair. Uh, sometimes scholars will refer to it as the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. But the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, tells the story of Israel, tells about its formation, tells about its creation, tells about its purpose, tells about how it lives out its purpose. It tells you about its failings. It tells you about God's blessings. It is the story of God's people. And then the New Testament tells the story of the church, about its creation, about its formation, about its development, about its successes, about its failures, and about its blessings. So there's Old Testament and New Testament. Which testament is longer? The Old Testament. In my Bible, the New Testament begins about here. You see it? And so I know there are many folks who say, well, why can't we just be, a, be about the New Testament? Uh, sometimes you'll hear there's, a, there's such a thing as a New Testament church. Well, I'm going to tell you there's a reason that the church, the Christian church in its wisdom, made three-quarters of its Bible the Old Testament. Both are important. And so I hope that's another thing we take from this class about the importance of the Old Testament. There are 66 books, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. There is also something in the Bible called the Apocrypha. Our Roman Catholic and our Anglican Episcopal friends use the Apocrypha. Uh, here's just a little trivia. Is the, the Apocrypha is actually considered part of the Old Testament in those traditions. So they have more than 39 books. So if you're, you read something in a Catholic bookstore or something that says there are, I don't remember how many, like 51 books in the Old Testament, that's why. The uh, Bible is made up. There is dozens of writers now, we can get into some really deep water into how the Bible was written. I'm going to say that I do not believe, nor do I believe it is the Christian tradition, to say that God directly wrote every word of the Bible. Some of you are a little on edge right now. What the scriptures claim is that God inspired. 
And so when you read the Bible, there's different types of books. There are some books written in poetry. Some are written in prose, which, as I understand it, just means not poetry. <laughs> Someone's an English teacher in here and will help me out with that. Uh, some are biographies. Some are ancient histories. Uh, some are law codes. They have different styles, different writers. The Bible is written in three different languages. Anyone know what the three languages are? Aramaic is actually third. Latin, there's no part of the, well, Latin was around and was the language of the Roman Empire in the first century, the time of the New Testament. Uh, there, there is no part of the, 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 the New Testament is written entirely in, in uh, Greek. The Old Testament is written 95% in Hebrew, and there are some parts of, uh, of some of the prophets that are written in Aramaic. Uh, Aramaic is the language that Jesus probably spoke day to day. It was the language of the people uh, in, the, in the Middle East in the first century. Um, but the New Testament is actually written in Greek, which probably represents the uh, spread of the gospel into the Gentile Greek-speaking regions. Greek was a language that everyone spoke. Um, only some people spoke Latin in some parts of the world. Some people spoke Aramaic, but just about everyone knew a little bit of Greek. And so it was able, that that was a language that I believe was able to be used. Dozens of writers. Uh, some of them were young. Some of them were old. Some of them we know who they are. Some of them we have no idea who they were. Uh, for example, the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some have suggested Paul wrote it, but that seems unlikely. Uh, there are lots of writers. We don't know who they are. And, they, and this book was not written in 30 days or 80 days or even five years. This book was written about probably over 2,000 years. We believe there's material, though probably not finished books of the Bible, as far back as 2000 B.C. And probably the latest book was probably written somewhere in the early part of the 2nd century A.D. But we're not going to really take a lot of time on that, but the point is to say that it was written by different people, to different people, in different circumstances, in different ages, but all inspired by the same God. You know how I know the Bible was inspired by God? How many of you have read the same passage twice and you heard different things? That's my challenge to you. You may say, well, I've read that before. I invite you to read it again because you read the Bible, but the Bible reads you. The Bible is living because God is living. The Bible is a window through which we can see God and God can see us. There's a great cartoon. How many of you have ever seen it? It says the person is praying silently, Lord, give me a word from you. And a hand from heaven stretches down with a book in its hand. <laughs> you know, we say we want a word from God, and God says, I gave you 1,800 pages. How many do you need? <laughs> I do believe God gives us words, maybe that aren't directly from the Bible, but I will never contradict the Bible. But I think God gave us this book. This is a gift. Can you imagine, I mean, how many of you, when, when someone tells you something, you have to write it down to remember it, right? 
Can you believe that God gave us this? I think there are things in here God wants us to remember. And so within this 2,000 years, within these different people that lived at different times, and, and some of these authors were well-educated, some of them were upper class, and some of them were fairly uneducated. Uh, some of them wrote through secretaries, so we know Paul did that often. Uh, some of them wrote it themselves. Some of these books have been edited and refined over time. But we believe that God is at the head of this. And that through, in some ways we think it would be better if, you know, God says, here is what I want the people to know, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. But the amazing thing is God uses different people to bring his message. And I think that's a strength because I think it reminds us, a lot of times we think we have to be a certain kind of person to be someone God uses. I think the Bible tells us that God uses all different kinds of people. There is no one in here God cannot use and God will not use. No one is too young or too old or too short or too tall or too smart or too uneducated or whatever to be used to share God's love. And I think that's what the diversity of the Bible teaches us. But within that diversity, I think there is a strand that continues throughout. And this week I've been trying to reduce to a, a single, perhaps multi-clause sentence of what I think the Bible is about. And it's in bold. And I said the message of the Bible is about a God whose nature is to be in relationship and when humans have failed and sinned, is on the move through ordinary people organized in community to redeem the world in Jesus Christ. That's a long sentence. What does that mean? We'll break it down word by word. One, what does that mean? The message of the Bible is about God whose nature is to be in relationship. Did you know that God is never alone? Why is God never alone? Because God is a trinity. We cannot speak of God other than to speak of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, that our earliest Christian forefathers and foremothers and ancestors, uh, they looked at who God was and they said, this God is forever Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were present before there was anything? Jesus did not begin in a stable in Bethlehem. Jesus existed before all times. Uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John, the fourth book of the New Testament, it says simply, through him, that is through the Logos, through the Word of God, through Jesus Christ, all things were made. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the water. And so from the beginning, God is in community. Even God refuses to be alone. Community comes out of the overflow of divine love. You see, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are held together, not by rule, not by law, but they're held together by love. And we believe that creation happened when that love overflowed into a world that was formless and void, where there was nothing. And love overflowed into creation. And so God is always looking to be in relationship. But the bad news is human beings have chosen to not be in relationship. And so the Bible acknowledges our human brokenness. 
I'm amazed whenever I get an opportunity to stand before you and I speak about struggle and I speak about the struggles that face me and that face you, how many people, how many people that, that touches and how many people um, are, are able to bring to acknowledge that they're, they're not having a great day, they're struggling too. That's not about me. I think it's about this word where the Bible acknowledges that humans are broken and flawed people. And even that God uses those people. Uh, I think sometimes we feel we can't come to church and bring that we are struggling, that we are hurting, that we have failed, that we have fallen short. We think we can't bring that to church. That's off limits. That's the opposite. The, the Bible tells us, does not say, you know, everything is going all right. You know, it's funny. I always say that I can tell if someone doesn't really read the Bible, if they say, what all those people in the Bible, they're such great people. I just like, you have not read it. Well, we'll talk about that. You have not read it. Uh, and that's not a conduct. I don't say that. I just think that. Um, <laughs> Uh, because the Bible is full of really troubled people. Um, David, the man after God's own heart, is so enticed and attracted to a woman that he kidnaps her, impregnates her, and has her husband murdered. That's the man after God's own heart. <laughs> How many of you are feeling real good right about now? <laughs> like, really? It, 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 they're real people, and they're, 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 they're messed up. They have messed up families. I said, I said two weeks ago, I wasn't preaching this here. I preached this at the church I was before. I, said, well, I was preaching on the prodigal son, and it begins with those famous words, a man had two sons. So when you read in the Bible there are two sons, it never goes well. <laughs> Some of you are like, what do you mean? You'll find out. Uh, it never goes well. Uh, the Bible acknowledges human brokenness. The Bible also acknowledges that God is on the move. God is not static. God is not like, I think so many people think, you know, God created the world. And it went over here and sat down. Just want to see what would happen. But when you read the Bible, God is active. God is the subject of so many sentences in the Bible, we'd lose count of it. But God is also on the move through people and through ordinary people. You see, the Bible acknowledges human brokenness, but does not make human brokenness an impediment to God using them. See, God works through flawed people. But by grace, God enables them to believe, to trust God's promises, and is able to use them. The prerequisite for God to use you is not perfection but willingness to accept God's grace. And that's what the Bible teaches from the beginning to the end. And people rarely, if ever, act alone. God is a master organizer. When God will talk about call the call of Abram, the beginning of, of the Bible, of the people of Israel, God did not say, you will be my people. He says, you will have descendants as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And you, plural, in Kentucky would say, y'all will be my people and I will be your God. I'm not just going to call one person, use one person, because when you call one person and you use one person, what happens to 100% of people who live? What, are they, what happens to them? They die. they die. 
you know, the Church of Christ near my house on Lexington Avenue has that sign. How many of you have seen it? Life, no one survives it. It's true. It's true. Um, so if God called one person, use them, they die. But God calls one person and says, you're going to be part of a family and you're going to pass it on. And so what God did is God used Israel. And, and you know what's funny? How many ancient civilizations do you, can you think of that still exist in, in direct descendancy? There aren't many, but one of them is Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews. They still exist. And it hasn't always been easy for the Jews. Even within many of your lifetimes, you remember the Holocaust and other opportunities, but, but yet... That those people God sustains. Another, I think, are the people of Persia, of Iran. They continue in somewhat unbroken line. And they're organized in people. God, uh, Israel use, God uses Israel to bring Jesus. God uses Jesus to bring the church. And the church, passed down through generations, brings Jesus to us. You know that term, the church, is ecclesia. That means literally the ones who are called together. Now, a note on that, when we talk about calling of Israel and the church, some say, well, does that mean God rejects other people? The answer is no. Because, you see, God doesn't call us and says, you are not called. God says, calls the church, God calls Israel and says, I am calling you for the purpose of blessing them. But see, the church does not exist for ourselves. What does the church exist for? The church exists for the world. The church, Israel, did not exist for themselves. Israel existed for the world. That's the story of the Bible. And then also to redeem the world. We talked about that fallenness. God does not say, well, you are broken. You are struggling. That's okay. God says, I, I will come and I will bring you back to what I've created you to be. I will redeem and restore you. In fact, uh, we'll talk a little bit about a, a, a timeline, kind of a, a salvation timeline. Um, let's put it this way. The project, there are, I can't remember, I should have looked up. Do you even know how many chapters there are in the Bible? I, I don't, I, it's, 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 um, it's like 2,000 or something. Well, the redemption project begins in chapter 3 of 2,000. <laughs> Just to give you a hint of the priority. And then finally, in Jesus Christ, Jesus is the center of the biblical story. Jesus is the one who redeems and restores the world. When we talk about redemption, we talk about restoration. None of it happens apart from Jesus. I, I think I, I, someone here told me, I may have been Garnet Sloan, said Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. That's a story. You know, the, New Te the Old Testament points to Jesus and the New Testament points from Jesus. Jesus is at the center of who it is. Jesus is the center of this story. And there's a great quote there. I won't read it. You can read it there. The Bible is the incontrovertible evidence of a God who refused to forsake rebellious creation, who refused to give up, who was and is determined to redeem and restore fallen creation to his original design for it. That is what the Bible is about. That is what... You and I, when we, every chapter, every story we read in the Bible, it plays some part in that story. And so there's a lot of ways to look at it. There are several ways that theologians and biblical scholars have used to talk about it. There are some themes that come up over again. A big one that many scholars, particularly our Reformed brothers and sisters, talk about is um, 
is covenant. There are many covenants in the Bible. We'll talk about the first one tonight. But one that is, I think, the simplest to understand is the Bible tells the story of our creation, our fall, our redemption, and eventually our glorification, the final hope of creation. So every story is somewhere on that timeline. I'll give you a hint. 98% of it's in that redemption category. <laughs> Chapter 1 and 2 are about creation. Chapter 3 is about fall. Genesis 4 through Jude, let's say, which is the second to last book of the New Testament, is about redemption and revelation about the glorification, the final hope. There's also some stuff in the Old Testament we'll talk about later that falls in that category of final things, particularly in the book of Daniel. Um, but, but when you look at that, where, when it, the, I'm going to give you that timeline. That's kind of what you, that's the price of admission. Was, what you paid for was to see that, is to say the Bible is primarily about creation to fall to redemption to final hope, to follow that timeline and to see within every story that story. Um, some of you notice when I preach, I tend to try to highlight that in every sermon because that's the story that everyone needs to hear when they come here, come to Centenary, is that we have troubles, we struggle, we bear the marks of sin, our own or others committed, other sins committed against us, but there is hope for redemption in Jesus Christ. That's the message of every sermon that I ever preach. That's the message, that's the message. That's the message of all the sermons in the New Testament. So it said, what's the application point? I said, well, it's simple. It's just what Peter said in Acts 2. Brother, what shall we do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the, that's the application uh, of every story the Bible tells. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And uh, so we're going to look at the Bible bit by bit. Before we uh, spend a few minutes, our last few minutes, on the first 11 chapters of the Bible, does anyone have any questions? I just poured a lot on to you now in the last 40 minutes. Let's all take three deep breaths and we'll go on. Okay, I invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 1 at the very first chapter, the very first book. It's not hard to find, just go to the beginning of your Bible, go to the first book, the first chapter, the first verse. There's a lot of different, if you uh, did not bring your Bible with you, I hope you'll bring next week. Some of you have it on your phone. If you've got it on your phone as an app, you can get your phone out, you can turn your app on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. There's probably a lot of you with different translations, but I suspect that uh, all of your translations begin with what words? In the, in the beginning. Is there anyone whose translation does not begin with in the beginning? Yours? Okay, what does yours begin with? When God began creating. When God began creating. What translation do you have? I'm very intrigued by this. Uh, Living, Living Bible. Okay. Uh, and and, uh, and when we look at that, that's because the very first word of the Bible is the word Bereshit. And Hebrew means in the beginning. The Hebrew title for this is Bereshit, which is really just uh, uh, four letters, B-R-S-T. The, uh, the uh, vowels are added later in Hebrew, but let's not talk about that right now. 
I have flashbacks when it comes to talking about Hebrew. Worst, worst grade ever got in seminary, folks, just telling you. <laughs> and it means or Genesis is, uh, comes from a Greek word, actually, from the Greek translation of the Bible called the Septuagint. And it comes from a Greek word, and it simply means origin. Uh, Genesis tells us about the beginning. Uh, Genesis tells us uh, the first 11 chapters are what scholars call the prologue. Uh, if you know much about ancient literature, ancient plays, you know that they usually began with what's called the prologue. If you've read the epics of Homer, there's a prologue. And it kind of, uh, and it's a song usually that's sung that tells you about what's going to happen. To kind of set the scene, get you ready. Uh, it kind of functions in the way uh, some of you, uh, as a side note, how many of you kind of mourn the, the, the loss of um, theme songs for shows like I do? You know, like songs used to have, the shows used to have songs. What would the Jeffersons be without, you know, moving on up? Uh, or Friends. Or um, just, I just think of so many of these shows, you're known by their theme song, and now they got nothing today. Uh, I think The Big Bang Theory still has a song. I have no idea what it's about. It's not a really good show, but a lot of people like it. Before that. See, I only have a limited, uh, all in the family. There's another great theme song. Um, so it's like a theme song for the Bible. It sets the scene. It tells you the story uh, of about leading up to next week. We'll talk about the calling of Abraham, the formation of Israel. Uh, these are the 11 early chapters. They are the most controversial chapters, so I'm going to hope to get around the controversy. Um, but I want to, we'll wade, actually we're going to wade right into the controversy. One of the main ways that I think these 11 chapters uh, function is in, this is a big word for you, etiological. That is, it answers questions, explains why things are. Uh, people from the beginning of time have looked around and they said, I wonder why dot dot dot. And so every ancient culture had a story or had a reason why things were the way they were. They explained questions like, where are we? Or why are we here? Who are we? Why, is, why am I not the person I want to be? And how can I get help? What's the solution? And so these stories you read, I hope I'm not going to deflate anyone's faith today. They're not, story, it, they're not the only stories that exist out there. They lived in a culture where everyone had a story. And many of these stories were actually quite similar. Um, the mythology of ancient Mesopotamia, uh, which is that fertile crescent. Some of you remember like world history class talking about how civilization arose in that area between the Tigris and the Euphrates where it overflowed and was the only part of that, the, the Middle East, where, where things grow and where life could be sustained and that called the fertile crescent where life arose. And, uh, and so they, uh, those uh, stories uh, in those areas were pretty similar. Uh, they all started with kind of this idea that there was nothing or there was chaos and that out of this chaos the gods brought order and they brought order in roughly the same order because uh, it's just amazing. Uh, I am not an expert in science. Uh, Humphrey is ten times what I am on science, I know. And, but, but the order that Genesis 1 talks about creation is not too dissimilar to what scientists today, as I understand it, say things were created. I mean, it's just amazing, right? They didn't have carbon dating, uh, but when, when, when uh, God spoke, that was in roughly that order. There's a divine flood story. You know, it's funny. There's a lot of debate over whether there was a flood in the ancient world. 
But it's interesting, every culture had a story that there was a flood. We might draw a conclusion that there's something out of that. <laughs> Maybe there was a flood, just saying. And then there's even a story of different towers with the origin of languages. They say, why do I speak this language, but the person 50 miles away speaks another language? And there's a story why that is. And so they would, they would have stories. But, but there's something unique and powerful about these biblical stories. We talk about creation. We'll talk about chapters 1 and 2 for a moment. In the Mesopotamian creation stories, it had a pictures of like gods were fighting, and they fought one day, and there was creation. Or in one case, they cut the head off another god and creation sprung out of that. Another thing is when, they, when the ancient people would look at the world, they would say, you know, they lived in farming and hunting societies. They lived according to the vagaries of nature. Some of you are farmers probably or have grown up on farms. Um, what happens if it doesn't rain for six months on your farm? Not good. Not good. What happens if it rains too much on your farm? Not good. And so what they said is it depends. If it rains too much or rains not enough, we're ruined. And, 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 and today we'd say you're bankrupt, but in the ancient world what happened? You died. Bad news. Um, so you died. And so, uh, so they said, well, you know what? Uh, that the rain... The sun must be God's. And they choose whether to come out. They choose whether to give me rain or whether to starve me of rain or to give me too much rain or to flood my crops. And, and so they would look and, and they would say, gee, you know, and, and the biggest God of all was the sun. It was the sun. You know, in Egyptian mythology, Ra was the, the great God, the God of the sun. But what the Bible teaches, what Israel was taught was in the beginning, there is a God who with a word said, oh, let there be light, and there was light. And light and darkness was separated. And in fact, on the fourth day, said, oh, let there be lights in the sky. We'll create a big one and a little one. The sun and the moon. They're not gods. They exist. They, they were created, and they serve God. That in fact, the, the Jewish story, story of Genesis 1 and 2 says especially Genesis 1 says that, that, the, that the things in the nature, they are not themselves God. They were created by God. And they uh, serve God just as we serve God. That there is something over and above, uh, over and above nature. And God created not with violence, not with treachery or trickery, but with a word. A wind from God, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the water, and God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Uh, let there be a dome in the midst of the water. Let there be land and water. And what happened? There was land and water. And on the third day, let, and, and, uh, the third day said, uh, let's have vegetation. Let's have plants yielding seed. Let's have trees of every kind on earth. And what happened? And it was so. Let there be the big light and the little light. They're not God's. They waited till the fourth day, after all. I think there's a purpose to that. To say on the fourth day, day and the night, and it was so. Okay, then let's let, uh, well, water will bring forth living creatures. We'll have birds fly over the air, and what happened? God spoke it, and it was so. Fifth day. 
Sixth day, let's bring the earth bring forth living creatures, cattle, creeping things. And what happened? And it was so. And so all the wild earth, animals of the earth happened, all of this with a word. And at the climax of creation, God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. 127 says, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You and I are in the image of God. It turns the story of, the, of their neighbors upside down, right? Nature does not, we do not serve nature. Nature exists for us. We are created to be the stewards of nature, not to be in fear of them, not to worship nature, but to take care of it. It's different from what they were taught all around them. God created. And then God rested. I want to mention the Sabbath. The Sabbath is really in many ways the climax of chapter 1. Scholars believe it was probably written uh, uh, to remind us of the importance of worship and of the Sabbath. And so said on the seventh day, God rested. That's the beginning of chapter 2. And later you're going to find that God says humans ought to rest also. So God, uh, God creates. God is perfect. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, my phone will probably start talking to us soon, soon too. Um, and so that's the beginning. And, and did you know that there's actually a, a second story of creation, chapter 2? It's a story that tells you the same thing, but in kind of from a different angle. And from there it talks about Eden as the center. God created uh, the, uh, God made the earth and the heavens, and yet created the plants, and then created it to be a place for the human to be. And here in chapter 2, uh, God creates man first, and then looks, and he says, this is not yet good. He says, we need a second one, because God refuses to be alone and doesn't think it's very good for you or me to be alone either. And so God creates a second one, takes from the rib, creates a woman. The Hebrew word for man is Es, and the woman is Esau. And that's when the world changed. And that's when the world changed. <laughs> For the better. You know, it's funny. Some people say, I can't decide what to interpret that as. Uh, someone said, well, that's a sign, you know, that man was created first. God meant man to be first. And then some said, well, man must have been the rough draft. <laughs> and so, you know, hey. And so we know that, that woman and man, there is, but what you need to know theologically is God created man and woman as an essential complementarity to come together. That is the basis of so much uh, thinking about Christianity and thinking I think that's important for us to remember today, the, the essential connection and complementarity of man and woman that is shown to us in marriage among other, among other uh, examples. Later Jesus says the same thing. A man and a woman join and they become one flesh. So God creates, uh, it also says that in 2.24. So God creates, God is the creator. And then in chapter 3 is a story, there is no parallel in ancient literature, and that is the story of the fall, that sin has entered the world, that sin is with us, sin is a reality, sin comes out of free will. Uh, God gave them one rule, which... Any of you who've ever had children know that was foreseeable. 
How many of you have ever given your children one rule? How long does it take before they break the one rule that you give them? How many of them, you, they want to break the rule more because it was the one rule you, they, you gave them? That's, we'll talk about that some more later. That's a little bit about the law. When we are given law, when we are given rules, there is something deep within our heart that makes us want to break them. And that's some of... And so what happens, so they create, so free will, they break the one rule that God gives them, and God is just to judge them and to pass judgment. The serpent is condemned, the serpent is to crawl along, and then it says really something interesting to the serpent. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, the woman, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Do you have an idea possibly who that descendant might be? Jesus. I think we see an image of Jesus saying that sin comes, but sin is not permanent. Eventually there will be one who will crush the head of evil and break its power. And so from there we go on to sin taking flower, though, because that time is not yet. I like to tell people, uh, what is the first known sin after they leave the garden? Murder. We didn't start with something simple now, did we? Now, we might say that the imperfect offering of Cain might be the first sin, but, but the Bible reminds us that human brokenness is real, that it is not minor, it is serious. It is sin. And so Cain and Abel is a story. Uh, Cain and Abel both make an, a sacrifice. God accepts Abel but does not accept Cain's. And Cain becomes jealous and angry and so takes his brother out and kills them. Once again, God is just to judge. Cain is separated. He is marked. And so the Lord put a mark on Cain that no one who came upon him would kill him, but he was cursed. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. There was yet another son, and his uh, there was uh, uh, yet another son. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son named Seth. And there we see the story of the descendants in chapter 5. And they lived a long time. There's one interesting person I want to highlight to you. His name is Enoch. It's really interesting. It says Enoch uh, lived 365 days. Enoch walked, this is 524. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. Because God took him. I was thinking about that today and I thought, you know, if the Bible makes it clear that Enoch walked with God in the midst of chapter 5, what do you think might also be possible about chapter 5? If it takes care to say Enoch walked with God, what might be true about the other people? Maybe they didn't. That God continually, after generation where maybe people didn't follow God, God continually reintroduces himself to people. We're going to find that when we look at the story of uh, Egypt, I think it's likely that the people of Egypt had forgotten about God because they believed God had forgotten about them. But God did not forget. God continually is at work, redeeming, restoring, continuing to connect. The wickedness of humankind gets worse and worse. There's a story in chapter, beginning of chapter 6 that says that uh, the sons of God um, and the daughters... Of the, of the world, uh, intermarried, interbred, and created a race called the Nephilim. Um, we do not know exactly what that means. 
it is possible I've had, I think Garnet Sloan has shared with me an interesting idea that that's possibly a distinction between the descendants of Adam and the descendants of Cain interbred and intermarried and became, uh, uh, but, but it could also mean literally from angels and the people of the earth. But the point is simply to say things got so bad that possibly it got so bad that the barrier between heaven and earth was started to break apart. It was that bad. And so we come to the story of Noah, that God sees that the thought of every human was evil and that continually, and God started to regret that he had made humans and resolved to wipe them out. But yet God saves a family, not a person, but a family, and they're Noah. And so water covers the earth, floods the earth. Again, God's judgment meeting sin, and yet the flood subsides. Noah exits, makes a sacrifice. God smells the odor, and God makes a covenant with Noah. We'll talk more about covenant next time. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is an agreement. It is not a contract for a thing, but a connection between people. And God says, I promise to you, I am connected to you. I will never destroy the world by water again. The first covenant in the Bible, the covenant to protect human life. And so God continues, uh, so Noah then has sons, they fill the earth. And from there we see the story of those three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And they go to different corners of the world and from that we say, from that the Bible says all the people in the world, they're descended from one of those three. And in fact chapter 10 tells us about the nations descended from Noah all around the world. Shem is the one we will talk about that comes we come back to Shem in chapter 11. But even though they, after the wiping out of the world, yet people were not changed, people were still disobedient. And so in chapter 11 tells us a story of a tower that was built called the Tower of Babel or Babel. And uh, where the people, once again, they tried to be like God. They tried to gather. They tried to build themselves up to the heavens. But God sees that. And once again, judgment enters and language is scattered and changed. But even in the midst of judgment, there is God's grace that sustains. You see, even when the people are thrown out of the garden, God makes them clothes to wear. Even when God destroys the world, He provides a way through the flood. And even when God scatters the language, yet we see in the end of chapter 11, the descendants of Shem... And we go generation after generation until we get to the end where we see the rise of someone named Abram. And Abram is the beginning of our next chapter. And we will get there next week. So those are the first 11 chapters. Next week we're going to go through the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This week I gave you the 5,000 foot view. We're going to continue to ascend next week as we go through the rest of what's called the Torah, the Pentateuch of the Bible. So we're going to pick up speed next next time, but this, these are important to see those first 11 chapters in detail. From there we see the 